Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. All right, well, good morning. My name is Joel Trainer, and I get to be the pastor here. We are in week two of a new series that we are calling The Curious Case of Jesus Christ. And if you've ever seen the, the movie The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, you know that he ages in reverse. It's kind of weird. Uh, but this series that we're going to be in here for seven weeks, we're in week two, we're going to walk through the life of Jesus in reverse. We're going to end with six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger on December 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve at 4 or 6 p.m. So if you're the planning type, you could start putting that, uh, putting that in your calendar and tell your friends and your family to come and join us for Christmas Eve Eve. As a Christian, as a person who is, considers himself a Christ follower, I don't assume that of everybody here in the room. I know that there are some of you, but I know that maybe you're just checking things out. I'm just telling you, as a, as a Christ follower, the aim of my life is simply to be like Christ. Jesus Christ, no matter where you're at spiritually, it's hard to deny that he is the most compelling, influential person in the history of the world. And if you want to look and see who's in second or third place, you might have a debate about that, but they're a distant second or third place behind the person of Jesus Christ. John, a close friend of Jesus's, said this in the book of 1 John, those who say they live in God, should live their lives as Jesus did. Period. Those who say they live in God, that God has changed their lives, that they're a Christian, well, then they should live their lives as Jesus did. In other words, we should speak graciously as Jesus did and care deeply about those in need like Jesus did and take breaks and vacations like Jesus did. And ask good questions like Jesus did, and be a good friend as Jesus did, and love selflessly, sacrificially as Jesus did. Before I get into a story about Jesus, I want to tell you a story about somebody in our church whose whose love for Christ has compelled them to want to be like Christ. And one of the great joys in getting to be the pastor of this church is that I get to hear stories like this, and I get to highlight people that would never highlight themselves. In fact, I'm, I'm risking getting punched in the jaw by the people who don't want me to share this story. They just want to live like Christ, and they're not looking for recognition. But, but many of you know who Brandon and Olivia Durfler are. And... Um, Many of you know that our church partners with My Village Ministries, which is a ministry that, uh, man, they raise up host families in churches to care for kids when families are going through a crisis. And six or nine months ago, the, the, the invitation was sent out, does anybody here at Three Creeks want to be a host family? Have some kids in your home while a family goes through something that I've never experienced in my life. And, and many of you have no idea what it's like, what some of these families are going through. And Brandon and Olivia, they said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get trained. And so they go to the training and they become a host family. A couple weeks ago, they get a call. Hey, there's a mom. She's homeless. She has three kids and she's trying to get back on her feet. Would you be willing to host these kids? And they said, yes. They said, yes. And another family, Jordan and Liz Ellis, 
they said yes too. And so they're hosting the older girl, and Brandon and Olivia are hosting a little boy who is four and a little girl who is one and a half in their home until Christmas. And, and like two kids is a lot. And, and two kids that aren't yours who have been through a lot is a lot. And it has been so challenging so far. And just getting to interact with them a little bit and hearing some of the stories, some of them make you laugh, some of them make you want to cry, it has been a lot. And then on top of that, there are some other families in our church. There's a young couple in our church. They're engaged. And this week on Wednesday, they said, we won't take no for an answer. We're coming to babysit. And they came over and said, Brandon and Olivia, go on a date. And they went out and they got a break. And then two other people yesterday came and helped Brandon all day because Olivia had to work and, and take pictures at a wedding. And then last night, one of our elders went over and helped put the kids to bed. And this afternoon, another young couple has said, we will take the kids for a few hours so Brandon and Olivia can go to a family event that they've had planned. And I, I asked Brandon this week, I said, what's it been like? He goes, dude, people are showing up at our door, giving us stuff. We don't even know who they are. They're just people from this My Village Ministries care community. They're bringing toys and clothes and food. I don't even know their names. And the reason, why, why do this? Why, why be so uncomfortable and let our plans be interrupted? It's so simple. It's that these people love Jesus and the love of Christ has compelled them to walk in the way of love, to live in an others-oriented, others-focused way. And I'm so proud when I get to hear stories of people, of Christians who say, Jesus Christ compels me to agape love, not to love so that they'll get something in return, but to truly, sacrificially, selflessly, they cannot pay me back love. That, that is the character and the person of Jesus on display. I was talking to somebody this week who said, it is so hard to do this. And yet, I can think of nothing that I've seen recently that looks more like Jesus. And so they're going to kill me for this, but would you guys give it up for Brandon and Olivia and for the way that they're walking in the way of love? And I, I tell stories like that because I, I want it to compel us. I want, it, I want you to sit there and go, there's nothing about Brandon and Olivia that makes it so that I couldn't do that too. And, and I just, I pray that our church would continue to walk in the way of love like they are. Let's jump into another story about the person of Jesus and see how compelling he is. Before I do that, I would love to pray. God, Father, we are going to come for about 25 minutes. We're going to look at a story about Jesus Christ in your word. It is a story that I have heard probably 500 times. And it's a story that everybody in the room, I think will be a little bit familiar with, if not very familiar with. And yet we believe that if we look at it again, that the character and the love of Christ, the habits of Christ, could compel us to live differently. Not so that we can follow the rules, but because you know what's best for us. In Jesus' name, amen. What would you say is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day? What comes to mind? The greatest enemy of the spiritual life in our day? There are lots of answers. There are lots of good answers. Dallas Willard, philosopher, great thinker, great writer, 
professor at USC for many years, answered that question. This is what he said 20 years ago. He said, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. Busyness, having too much to do, always feeling a little bit anxious or a little bit rushed, thinking about the next thing while you're doing something. That, Dallas Willard, that's the best thing you come up with? You think hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day? You mean it's not the recent election results? You mean it's not artificial intelligence? You mean it's not Harry Potter and all the potions and wizardry? You mean it's not all this stuff that's being thrown my way? The Harry Potter thing was a joke, by the way. You mean, you mean it's not all these other things that immediately came to mind? It's it, it's it, just hurry? Just being busy? That's the great enemy to the spiritual life in our day? The great enemy of our spiritual lives is simply that we're too busy to connect with God? Is it really that simple? John Mark Comer a man who I love to follow and listen to, I think a great pastoral voice for our generation says this, sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off our connection with God. Sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off our connection with God. And so in an effort to talk about our spiritual lives, the health of our souls. Let's talk for a second today about our connection with God, our quiet time, our personal devotions, whatever you want to call yours. Let's have a conversation about what that looks like in our lives. And let's, let's consider, as we look at the Bible, what Jesus is like as it relates to busyness and connection with the Father. A few questions as we begin. Do you regularly connect with God? Have you ever regularly connected with God? When I, when I begin to talk about this, do you reminisce about a time when you used to regularly connect with God? If you do or if you have, what's it like? What does it consist of usually? How often is regularly for you? How long? What does it look like? To be a follower of Jesus means that we want to be like him in every way, adopt his lifestyle. And let me just make sure that we all know this about Jesus today, that Jesus was constantly abandoning noise, pushing pause on the to-do list, getting away to a quiet place, and spending time with the Father over and over and over. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you today that over and over and over, he would get away from the crowd and the noise and the volume. He would go to a quiet place and he would spend time with the Father. So if you have your Bibles, would you open them to Matthew chapter 14? If you don't own a Bible, we've got a stack of them. I can actually see them right now through the doorway. And if you want to grab one on your way out today, that would be our gift to you. You can keep it. And if you don't have one today... You can look up on the screen, and we'll have the verses there for you. Matthew chapter 14. Fun fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, 
all four of them record the miracle, the story that I'm about to read you. It's the only miracle other than the resurrection of Jesus that all four authors record. There comes a time in Jesus' life when great crowds begin to follow him. He lives 30 years in relative obscurity, and because he starts doing some amazing things, great crowds begin to follow him, and the word gets out. This is a story in Matthew 14 when the, the buzz is growing about Jesus. I'm just going to read you the, ver, uh, the, the story. I think it's eight verses, and then I'll go back through and explain a little bit about it. Matthew 14, verse 13, says this. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go back to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Here we only, here, uh, here we go. Let's try that again. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So Jesus attempts to kind of get away from it all, but this huge crowd, maybe 15,000 people, follow him. They can see his boat from the shore, and they get around to where Jesus was trying to go to, and Jesus has compassion on them. He begins to teach them and heal them. And, um, and another one of the accounts, Jesus, he actually said to Philip, he said, hey, we should feed these people. Philip, can you figure out a way to feed all of these people? And I imagine Philip is like, no, Jesus, no. You, there's only one restaurant that could do that, and it's Chick-fil-A. And you haven't invented Chick-fil-A yet. Nobody can feed this many people on such short notice. And Simon Peter, another one of the disciples, comes up and he says, hey, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish and I, I have reminisced some on this verse, and I thought, was he being sarcastic or was he being serious? Did he really think he was being helpful? Maybe he had so much faith that Jesus was about to multiply it and feed all these people. I don't know. But Jesus says, let's see what I can do with this. And he takes the bread and the fish and he breaks it and he feeds all these people. The crowd responds. The crowd responds, this has got to be the Messiah. Because they've heard stories about their ancestors. When their ancestors were in the wilderness, God provided bread, manna from nothing. And here we go again, Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilling all the prophecies, feeding us in the wilderness from nothing. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And I want you to consider for a moment the number of requests 
that would have been coming Jesus' way right after dinner. The line of people that would have been trying to have a minute with Jesus. The number of people that wanted to be healed. The number of people that wanted to go boxes for more food because they didn't have food at home. The number of people that would have said, Jesus, can you please send rain for our crops? Jesus, can you help me with housing? I've got a hole in my roof. Jesus, can you heal my kid? My kid couldn't make it here today. Can you heal him? And so the list of things that Jesus is being asked to do is growing and growing. There's a long line of people that want Jesus to do something for them. Every one of these requests probably felt very urgent coming from the people that were making these requests. So what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to write them down? Is he going to strategically organize them so he can make the most of his time? Is he going to work longer hours? Let's see what Jesus does. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. He goes up on a mountainside immediately to spend time with God the Father. At the peak of his popularity, when he is so busy, the demands on him are far greater than they have ever been on you. And it's in that very busy moment that Jesus withdraws and he goes away to a quiet place to be with God the Father. You see, when I get busy, just being honest, when I get busy, my time with the Father is the first thing to go. But with Jesus, his time with the Father is the first thing that he goes to. He knows where the source of strength is at to do what God has called him to do. He doesn't get caught up in the urgent. He does what is important. And so maybe, maybe Dallas Willard was right that hurry and busyness is the great enemy of the spiritual day because we get caught up in what is urgent and not in what is important. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Here's something that I found to be interesting. If you look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 24 other times that Jesus gets away to spend time with God the Father. All four authors find it important to write that down. That, to me, seems like a detail if it were just a fact about Jesus' life that wasn't all that important, wasn't meant to be imitated. That is a detail that the authors certainly could have left out. All four authors write that down and highlight that Jesus consistently, at the busiest times, got away to spend time with the Father. This is how Jesus began his ministry. It's how he made important decisions. It's how he recharged after a hard day of work. It's how he dealt with troubling emotions like grief and anger. It's how he cared for his own soul in the life of demands. It's how he prepared for important events. It's even how he prepared for his death on the cross. He got away alone in a quiet place. 
in most of the instances where Jesus gets away, the Greek word that uh, is attributed to the places that he would go is called the eremos, E-E-R-E-M-O-S, eremos, that Jesus would go to the eremos, which in English, the best way to translate it would be to a quiet or a deserted place. Monks in civilization's past in the Middle Ages would view the eremos as a quote-unquote a place to encounter God and do battle with Satan. And I love that. Moses and David and Jesus and Paul all went to the Eremos for the hope of a deeper fellowship with God. There's something about a physically quiet place that allows us to communicate with God in a unique way. I read something this week about... Uh, it's, it's called the one square inch of silence. Have you guys ever heard about this? It's in the state of Washington. And you have to fly there, and then you have to go to, a, I think it's called Olympic National Park. And in the middle of Olympic National Park, there's a group of people that have identified an area where no planes travel over it. You can't hear cars off in the distance. It is, it is one square inch of silence. They claim it's one of the last truly quiet places in the United States of America. And so you sign up with this group and you walk out a few miles through the woods. And when you get to this place, when you're approaching the one square inch of silence, which it's marked by a little red rock that is one square inch in diameter. And, and when, you, when you approach it, there's this tree that has all these roots that are kind of above the ground, and you almost walk through this doorway of roots. And when you get to the doorway, the guide says, go in there, sit on the red rock. The only thing that you will hear will be natural sounds. There's nothing man-made that you will hear. And you can sit there, and you get to sit there as long as you want. And, and as I was reading these testimonies of people that have experienced this, they go in there and they sit, and, and the guides say that usually people wait for hours before they get up. They said most people begin to cry at some point because they can't remember the last time that they sat in a quiet, silent place. One, one of the person wrote that... Um, they, they were asked why they began to cry, and they said, I had a close friend die earlier this year and realized when everything was finally quiet that I hadn't even begun to grieve yet. And the founder of this one square inch says something, and I think this is important based on how expensive flights to Washington are right now, in case you're interested. He says, in a lot of ways, the one square inch of silence is arbitrary, you can move it elsewhere in the park or maybe even somewhere else in the world, but it's the idea of finding a place where you can be silent and truly listen. Writer Henry Nouwen says, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life without solitude. And to you and me, it does make sense. You don't just naturally disagree with this. You, you, we all crave this. We hear about quiet and we're like, please, where can I get that? This does make sense. The relationships, excuse me, the relationship that we have with God the Father is not unlike other relationships in our lives in that time together matters. What would happen to my relationship with my wife, Morgan, if we never spent time together, if we never laughed together or cried together or asked questions to each other or dreamt together? What would happen? 
if we never did that? You say, well, obviously, your relationship would suffer, it would wither, and it would feel completely empty if it didn't die. It's just human nature that it, it makes sense to spend time with a person that you're in a relationship with that you're trying to cultivate. Here, here's, what, um, here's what it feels like when we don't spend time with the Father. If you're, if you're a Christian and if you're thinking to yourself, man, I do want a deep relationship with God, but you don't regularly connect with God, spend time with Him. This is what happens when we don't. We end up feeling distant from God. We end up living off of other people's connections to God via podcast or book. And we end up envying other people's connections to God. We feel distanced from ourselves, from our wiring, from our calling, because we lose sight of what is most important to us. And we only do what is urgent in front of us. Anybody else? We, we haven't gone to the Father and let Him remind us what the most important things are. We have, an under, <clears throat> we have an underlying anxious feeling all the time in that we're always feeling like we're trying to catch up because we haven't given God the time to remind us what is most important. We end up tired. When we wake up, we're tired already. And then because we're tired, we turn to cheap fixes a glass of wine, a cup of coffee, binge-watching a show, social media, pornography. And then we end up becoming easy prey for God's enemy. Because, and, and we end up slipping slowly into the things that we never thought in a million years we would do. In a million years, we would never do that. We become easy prey for the enemy. On the flip side, this is what happens when we do regularly connect with God. We find places that we can truly rest. We find that God the Father in his friendship enables us to take deeper breaths. We actually take our time doing things. We enjoy things in life. We're present with people because we have spent time with the person who holds the world in his hands. We end up, this, this, is, this is far too rare. We end up being able to feel all human emotions. And we feel them, not just the good ones, but all of them. We're not numb to them. God is there for us through the whole experience. We face everything. This is, this is, this is the part that's hard. This is the part that we're scared of. We face everything that lives in our hearts. If we spend 15, 20, 30 minutes with the Lord every day, Everything that lives in our hearts shows itself. We can't ignore it with a busy schedule. Our worry, our depression, the fear of what people think about us, our desire or lack thereof to be with God, everything. And all of that stuff, if we spend time with God, doesn't leak onto other important relationships in your life in the form of irritability or anger. Instead, it's shared with a God who cares for us. And in a lot of ways, those things are released to him rather than on to people we love. 
And ultimately, we do avoid decisions that destroy us and people around us. So, so if you look at those lists side by side, and you go, wait a minute, you're, you're saying that if I regularly connect with God, all of those things change? It, it's almost as if, I know this it sounds crazy, it's almost as if God really does love us, and he really does care for us, and he really did have Jesus live this out, and he really did have the gospel writers record it, and he really did say, hey, live like Jesus did. Adopt his lifestyle. Do the things Jesus did. Not because he's trying to impose upon us a list of rules that Christians should follow, but because it's where the life is at. It's as if God really does know what's best. It's as if he knows that he really is a place, a person that can help us be centered and not so busy and do the most important things and breathe life into other people. I know it sounds crazy, but maybe his way is the best way. I mean, they wrote about it 25 times in the Gospels. Maybe it's something that we should pay attention to. So in conclusion, what do I do? How do I respond? How do I walk in the way of love? Let me offer a few very practical tips, and you can take them or leave them. But I think that they would be helpful if you have any interest in spending time regularly with God. Number one. Here's the takeaway. Number one, identify your place. Identify your place. Where can your eremos be? Perhaps it is a chair in your house, or it's in your car, or it's a park near your home, or it's a break room at work, or it's on your back porch. Here's what I'll, here's what I'll say. Everyone who I've ever met who spends time with God regularly over a long period of time, consistently, daily, this encounter with God, time spent with the Father. Everybody I know who's doing that for a long time usually does it in the same place at the same time. It's not random. It's not when they feel like it. It's discipline. It's over and over. And it's in the same place. And so I would encourage you, maybe if you reflect on your life and I go, hey, where were the times that you connected with God the most? Chances are you can actually think of a place, a chair, a room where that happened. And I would encourage you to say, to identify that place. Don't just kind of hope for it or hope to stumble into it. Say, this is my spot. This is my Eremos. This is the quiet place that I go to to get away. Number two, stick to a plan. Stick to a plan. Have a plan and stick to it. The number one reason why I hit snooze in the morning is not because I'm too tired. It's not because I don't love God. It's because I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm not sure if they have, I have the energy to figure that out every single morning. So it's really important for me to have my Bible and my pen and my journal next to my chair. It's just important for me. When I wake up in the morning and the coffee's already brewing and my stuff is there and I have a plan, I am so much more faithful and consistent that spending time with God the Father. I am the most irregular, the most uncommitted when I am between plans. When I have a plan that I'm going through, a book I'm going through, something I'm doing with friends, man, I, my consistency goes way up in those instances. So find a, uh, identify your place, stick with the plan. If you are currently, right now, you're, you're listening to this and you're going, man, I'm not acing everything, but right now this is something that I feel like I'm doing well in. I do have a place, and I do have a plan. You have permission for the next 90 seconds to tune me out. 
But if you're going, you know what? This hasn't been 100% A plus for me recently. Like, I feel like I'm interested and I want to have a plan. Let, let me just throw this out there. Here's an idea. Do you know how long it would take you to read the entire New Testament? 27 books about the life of Jesus, the start of the church, and, and Revelation. 27 books in the New Testament. Do you know how long it would take you to read through all of that if you read for 22 minutes a day? 22 minutes a day, that would take you 40 days. There are 42 days between today and the end of the year. And so I printed off a reading plan and I printed them off and I put them on a table in the back and on your way out today you can grab one and, and I mean this seriously if we and, and you go man if you're trying to tell me you don't have 22 minutes a day I'm just saying we all could read the entire New Testament if we didn't scroll on the phone when we were in the bathroom like that's I'm just being honest like think about that we could replace that with reading the Bible. We could read through the whole New Testament by the end of the year. And I'm going to do that, and I hope maybe that some of you guys will grab one of those sheets and say, I'll, I'll jump on that and I'll stick with that plan. And I can't imagine we'd get to the end of the year and say, I regret doing that. I'm, I think we'll be really glad that we did. Here's the last one. Do this alongside other people. Do this alongside other people. I... I would be very surprised if you need me to try to explain or convince you that accountability or friendship in this matters. Uh, right at the, at the men's retreat, about a month and a half ago, I rode back with two people from that retreat. I'd heard both of these people express at the men's retreat at the end of September that spending time with God regularly was kind of something that they wanted to do. And then the car ride home, we just came up with this plan that for the 30 day, 31 days of October, we were going to create a group text. We had a little plan that we set up, and we were just going to text each other. And, and the like game changer, to do it with other people. And so I would strongly encourage you, if, if you're going to do this uh, New Testament reading plan over the next 40 or 42 days, do it with somebody. Look and see somebody else who picks up a piece of paper that you know. Do it with somebody in your community group. Do it with a friend. Just text them every day and say, hey, I did it. Encourage them. Hold them accountable. Check in. If you do it as a group, it's going to go a lot better. Identify your place. Stick with a plan. Do it with other people. Three practical uh, principles to help us spend time with God. Here's what I'll say as I close, and then we're going to get to sing a song together. So th this idea of spending time with the Father. It's been on my mind all week. I knew I was going to share that. And so, I, I don't know. I, it was just on my mind a bunch. And my son Judah, he's five years old. He loves spending time with me. I know there will come a day where he will have, in his mind, far more important things to do. But right now, I'm at the top of the list, and I'm excited about that. And so he, he is constantly asking me to do stuff and so this year, I just invited him into three or four or five different adventures that I was on, and I just had him come with me. And we just spent a lot of time. He spent a lot of time with his father. 
And two days ago, you know, I was doing this and I was sitting on the couch with him and I was like, hey man, we've really been hanging out a lot recently, huh? He's like, yeah. And I held his face and I said, how's it been? And I, w- I was just really, you know, hoping for a great closing illustration here for you guys. And he said, you make good breakfast sandwiches. like, all right, buddy, we'll try again later. And and then as I reflected on that a little bit more, I thought, man, he doesn't even know. He doesn't even know how good it is to get to spend time with his dad. And I'm an earthly dad. I'm a selfish dad. I'm a sinful dad. I'm an under construction dad. There is a limit There is a limit to my love for my son. There just is. And and, and I I just think about the, the, the heavenly father that is described through the whole Bible as being one that loves us with no limits. And I think about my son, like one of the things that I love the most, it sounds bad, but with if Judah ever gets hurt, and he does, Every couple hours, I love when he runs to me. And when he has questions, dumb ones or real ones, I love when he comes to me. When he has lied and when he is feeling convicted and guilty, I love, I don't even care if he lied at that point. I just love that he comes to me and wants to talk to me. I love when my son, when my child wants to come and talk to his father. And I just think sometimes you, you, you consider this spending time with the father regularly. And because we haven't in a while or because of some decisions we made that we're not real proud of, we feel like we have to kind of tiptoe back into these times with God, hoping he doesn't bring that kind of stuff up hoping he just forgot about it. We can just kind of slide back in. And the truth is that if you have real questions or if you have been really hurt or if you're very embarrassed or ashamed of things that you've done, the Bible paints this picture over and over of a father whose arms are wide, who wants to lavish forgiveness and grace on his kids, who just says, come here, come spend time with me. Come spend time with your dad. That is the picture of God. He doesn't wait for us to, for us to get our stuff together. He, he's open to everything that we want to bring to him. And so my, my hope, my prayer for us as we take, as we go from here, is that we would be like Jesus and that we would withdraw during busy times and go to the Father and share everything with him. Not with our tail tucked between our legs, with our arms open too, saying, even if it's been a while, we go to him and we say, it's been a while, but I'm back. Can we talk? And we have a God who will say, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad that you decided to spend time with me today. Here's my three closing questions. I'll give you two or three minutes to think about it. Number one, where will your place be? Consider that. Where could it be? Number two, what plan will you stick to? Maybe you've got one. Or maybe you want to grab one of these papers on the way out today. And if you want to journey with me, I'd I'd be thrilled 
to be one of your people because the third one is who are the people you want to follow Jesus with? Ask somebody today on your way out of church, text them this afternoon at group this, I guess we don't have groups this week. You have to text them. You have to call them. You say, hey, I'm going to try to do this. Will you do this with me? And see what happens. For 40 days in a row, just go spend time with the Father. Will you consider these three questions? And then the band will lead us in a song in just a minute. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.